0: Uh, well, Welcome to week three of our series called Knowing and Encountering God. This is a two-part series. It kind of revolves around Easter. And for this part of the series leading up to Easter, we are focusing on who God is by each week looking at one of his attributes. And as I say that, if you're hopping in today, that might sound like a very purely intellectual exercise. Like it might be fascinating, but it doesn't have any actual relevancy to our lives. I actually I just offer this kind of as the intro to today's teaching, that I think talking about the nature of God and just kind of sitting there, I think that's one of the most practical things we can do. Uh, I I shared this quote with you on the front end of this series, although I only shared kind of half of it. A.W. Tozer, famous theologian, he said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Here's the part of that quote that I did not include. He said, we tend by a secret law of the soul, to drift toward our mental image of God. What he means is that how you view God, not what you know about him, not what you've heard about him, not the Bible verses that you can quote about him, how you personally view God, that has already had a profound impact on your life. That has, in ways maybe you're not even aware of, has shaped your life to a large degree already. Uh, that's how powerful that is. And, and in fact, I would say that, and, and, and I think scripture affirms, that underneath all of our surface level issues, whether we are inordinately anxious or angry, burnout or bitter, prideful or deflated, that somewhere underneath all of that is really a failure for us to really see God clearly. And so the hope for this leg of the series is that as, as we take time each week looking at these different attributes of God, that we would see Him more clearly, but in seeing Him more clearly, that that wouldn't be just information for information's sake, but it, it would be information for the sake of transformation. So on week one, uh, we talked about how God is a God who can be known. Uh, last week, we talked about how God is a God who, uh, who's sovereign. <clears throat> today, we're, we're talking about an attribute of God. Let me just kind of tee this up for a moment here. Um, this is really, uh, you know, I hope this doesn't come across as self-deprecation or anything like that. The attribute of God that we're talking about today is one that I feel... <clears throat> it just brings me to terms with my own inadequacy. Not that I was ever adequate or qualified to talk about God at all, but this one is one where I really feel like I'm just out of my depth. However, you have to. You have to talk about the attribute of God that we're talking about today because it is, uh, I think you'll agree as we walk through it, today's attribute of God is maybe the key aspect of understanding who God is. Today... We're going to talk about God's holiness. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13, and we'll go through uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. It says this. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. I've now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in worship and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites, no one leaving or entering. The Lord said to Joshua, Look, I've handed Jericho its king and its fighting men over to you. March around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets. When there's a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, have all the people give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the people will advance, each man straight ahead. This is God's word. This is probably a passage that you, you haven't spent a great deal of time in, but I like it uh, for, the, for the topic that we're looking at today because in this passage what happens is Joshua comes to see and understand the holiness of God in a way that not only immediately, uh, but in a lasting way changed him. And so the hope is that as we dig into this passage and what it shows us about who God is, and specifically this aspect of his holiness, that it would have the same impact for us. And what I'd like to do is is um, really answer three questions. First, what is the Bible talking about when it when it says that God is holy? Uh, secondly, what does it mean when it's calling us to be holy? Thirdly, how on earth is that possible? So we'll start and, and uh, kind of just recap the story a little bit here since it's so short. Um, first half of verse 13, it says, uh, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up. So let me just give some context here. This is important to really get into Joshua's sandals here. Um, about 40 years before this, God delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness right to the border of the promised land, literally the land he promised them. Uh, of course, that land was occupied, and were not the residents were not just going to you know, give it to Israel. They were going to have to fight for it if they wanted it, and so Israel sent 12 spies into the land. Uh, Ten of the spies came back, and they all essentially said the same thing, which was, this isn't going to work. They saw the size of the people. They saw the size of the cities. They saw the, uh, the fortif- fortification of the cities, the technological marvels, and they, they, just, they looked at that and they looked at themselves and they said, hey, there's just no way we win this fight. Two, only two of the spies actually believed that God would give them the victory. One was a man named Caleb. The other one is the main character of this story, Joshua. <clears throat> so God sent. Uh, The entire nation of Israel back into the wilderness until that generation of people who would not take God at His word, uh, He he let them die off. He let that entire generation move on until another generation was raised up that would actually believe God and do what He commanded. Uh, And so here Joshua is, he's now 40 years older. Uh, We don't know how young he was when he was a spy into the land of Canaan. I'm assuming, though, that he was not a child. So no matter which way you look at it, Joshua is not, um, you know, he's not a spring chicken at this point in his life. And so he's now led uh, his people, Israel, into the promised land, which he knew they should have been standing in some 40 years ago. Uh, and he's, he's looking at the first of these great fortified cities that stood between Israel and the promise that God had given him. And, you know, when, when it says that he's, he's, he's near Jericho, he's kind of on the eve of this battle, and he's looking up, I don't think it's terribly difficult to get into Joshua's head here. Uh, I'm sure that as, as, as uh, Joshua looked at the city of Jericho, what he was thinking is that as cowardly as those ten spies were, were 40 years ago. They were right about one thing, uh, and that's that on paper, Israel does not beat Jericho. Uh, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for several hundred years. God led them through the wilderness. It's not like they had time to really, um, you know, develop technologically or militarily or anything like that. They didn't have some kind of secret wall-breaking weapon. And so you look at the city of Jericho. Jericho was was probably the most technologically advanced city, if not in the world, then certainly in the ancient Near East. Um, And and Israel simply had no military or technological answer for how they were going to get through the walls of Jericho. So so, uh, Joshua is no doubt wondering how on earth this whole thing is going to play out. And then this mysterious figure appears, Scripture tells us, with a, uh, a sword drawn in his hand. Now, that's really significant. Because in that day, and I would say in every day and age, the only reason that you draw your sword is because you're getting ready to use it. And so Joshua, being a warrior uh, and a warrior of uncommon courage, does what he's supposed to do. He confronts this individual in front of Jericho, and he asks him a very appropriate question. He just gets right down to business. He said, are you for us or are you for our enemies? The answer to that question is, of course, going to dictate whether or not they're friends or one of them is going to die there that day. Uh, The figure responds to Joshua very significantly. Uh, My version of the Bible says that that this figure says neither. Maybe that's what yours says too, but in the Hebrew, that's not what uh, he he literally said. Uh, His literal answer is no, uh, which I can't help but find interesting because Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And this figure says no. It wasn't a yes or no question. But in answering that way, it's almost as though this figure is saying, Joshua, I'm going to extend a little grace here. You're not even asking the right question. He then identifies himself and says, I have now come as the commander of the Lord's armies. That was basically his way of saying, Joshua, the question is not whether or not I'm on your side. The question is whether or not you're on mine. Uh, Joshua very quickly and appropriately recalibrated and fell on his face bowing before this figure, not just as an act of respect, but Scripture says that he did so as an act of worship, Uh, which again is a big deal because as an Israelite man, uh, Joshua would have known probably the number one rule of being an Israelite is you don't worship anybody who is not God. And so the fact that he was willing to do that shows that he knew who he was standing in the presence of that day. And of course, this figure did not correct him or reprimand him, he accepted it, and, and he says something that you've probably heard in Scripture before. He tells Joshua, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy. So that sounds familiar to you. It's because this story is almost, um, well, I wouldn't say almost. It is. It's a deliberate recap of God's interaction with Moses so many decades before. And if you kind of compare and contrast the two stories, um, it's undoubtedly that, we're, that, that Scripture's trying to get us to, to kind of hold those two Stories alongside each other because, in, in both cases, God met with these people, Joshua and Moses, after a 40 year period. You know, Joshua had to lead the nation of Israel 40 years in the wilderness. Moses actually was in exile in Midian for 40 years after killing an Egyptian uh, uh, taskmaster. Uh, so, God met with them after a, a period of 40 years. God met with them when they were alone. God appeared to them both uh, in a way that was both awe-inspiring and threatening at the same time. God told both of them to remove their sandals, but this is what what I want to draw our attention to for the purpose of this teaching. Um, The first thing that God, uh, uh, the first attribute that God drew attention to of himself regarding Moses and Joshua, the first attribute that he mentions about himself is his holiness. He didn't say Uh, remove your sandals because this place is filled with love. He didn't say it's filled with wisdom, uh, power, or even glory. He said, Joshua, remove your sandals because the ground that you have found yourself on because of my presence has been made holy. This is a theme that you see all throughout Scripture in God's dealing with people that that, uh, most of the time, the attribute of God that is referred to first and his attribute that is referred to most is his holiness. Uh, And so, that kind of leads us to, to the first question I wanted to get at today. Um, maybe it's a question you've asked yourself before, but what is the Bible actually telling us when it says that God is holy? What does it mean that God's a holy God? Uh, I said this to the 9 a.m. I I, I could have pulled you know, the, the audience at the 9 and the 11 a.m. services today, probably gotten several hundred different answers, and, and probably most, if not all of them, would have been right because holiness is a very exhaustive, expansive concept that means a lot of things at once. But there's one specific verse in the Bible where God himself answers this question for us in a really helpful, succinct way. It comes from the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, and in, in, uh, it's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, which says, who will you compare me to, or who is my equal, asks the Holy One. So when the Bible tells us that God is holy, what, what that means first and foremost is that God is incomparable, a word that literally means he is without equal in quality or extent. He is matchless. And if you think about it, the commander of the Lord's army gets that idea across to Joshua in a really subtle way because Joshua asked the question, are you for us or are you for against us? Are you for our enemies? What Joshua was trying to do is—it is, is, was a smart thing. It was the, probably the smartest thing to do. He's trying to figure out uh, what camp to place this figure in. He's trying to figure out what category I can place you in because once I can figure that out, I can know how to approach you. He's saying, are you for us? Are you like us? Are you one of us? Or are you for them? Are you like them? Are you one of them? And when this figure said no, he spoke that way because the, the God of the Bible cannot be placed into a category. The God of the Bible cannot be compared to anyone or anything. He is utterly, entirely incomparable. Uh, and, and, and one of, the, kind of the, the aspects of his incomparability is the fact that God, you know, we're told over and over in Scripture, is a being that is entirely without imperfection. In, in the epistle known as 1 John, we're told that God is light and in him is no darkness whatsoever. That means that he is, he is utter perfection itself. And it's that aspect of God's nature that causes his presence to be, you could say that his presence is, is shown to be uh, unsettling, uh, it's shown to be threatening, and actually even traumatic when people find themselves in the presence of God all throughout the Bible. And for, for instance, we're told that when the presence of God descended on Mount Sinai, Israel didn't rejoice, they shuddered. They literally shook as they began to understand what this God is like. Isaiah the prophet, when, when he began to see God for who he was and how holy he was, all he could say is, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When, when Peter began to understand who Jesus was, you know, standing on his boat in the Sea of Galilee, his boat was filled with fish at the time. Scripture says Peter simply hit the deck, literally buried his face in those fish, not the best smelling creature in the world, and all he could say was, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. And here, in keeping with all of that, Joshua simply hits, he just he just falls on his face. That response makes sense when you understand that God being holy means that he is utterly incomparable in his perfection. Because when imperfect people enter into the presence of perfection itself, it causes us to come to terms somewhat painfully with how utterly imperfect we are. Before I move on from this first idea, uh I, heard this this week and I I thought this was fascinating, Jonathan Edwards, when he spoke about the holiness of God, he pointed out that one of the things that makes this particular attribute of God unique is that when you hold up God's holiness alongside basically every other one of his attributes, and I, I think this is true, that you can do this with every other attribute, he said it's possible to be attracted to every other one of God's attributes for wrong reasons. For instance, you could be attracted to the love of God just because you're lonely, and you don't want to be lonely anymore, and maybe God will fill that need. That's great. You could be attracted to uh, the mercy of God because you're tired of hating yourself, and you're tired of feeling condemned and guilty and ashamed all the time, and God will take that away because he's merciful. Great. You You could be attracted to the wisdom of God because you're faced with some really difficult to navigate situations. You know, in your life right now, you can be drawn to the power of God because you want Him to do something for you. All of those are, are are fundamentally self-centered reasons to be drawn to God. But but Jonathan Edwards says God's holiness is unique because it doesn't work like that. He he said that that one of the ways you can know that God has really begun to work in you and that He really is transforming your heart. One of the hallmarks of that is that you find yourself being increasingly drawn and attracted to God's holiness because God's holiness is His most threatening attribute. But He followed that by saying it is also the attribute that has the most power to change your and my life. So first and foremost, uh, the thing that we see about God here is that he's a holy God. Uh, It's fine to talk about that, you know, to talk about God's holiness and to kind of stand back in awe of that, Um, but Joshua understood, and really this is the heart of the series, that when you experience the holiness of God, Joshua knew uh, this isn't meant to just be Intellectually analyzed in a purely educational way. It's meant to change your life. That's why we read in verse 14 that when Joshua encountered the presence of this God, he, he, he bowed down and worshiped, but in doing that, he also asked the question. Verse 14, he said, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? What he's asking is, How should I live in light of your holiness? Just tell me what to do. Your wish is my command. Tell me what is the right response. who you are from here on out you get to call the shots and of course scripture answers joshua's question for us in both old and new testament where where anyone interested in living a life that pleases god um, anyone interested in, in following jesus is explicitly commanded that the only response to god's holiness is to be holy yourself over and over again god commands his people be holy as i am holy so again that raises the question What does that mean? What is is Scripture actually commanding us to be or to do when it commands us to be holy? And I'd like to offer you kind of a two-sided answer to that question based on how the Bible uses that word. Uh, One side of the coin has to do with our relationship with God. The other has to do with our relationship with the world. So, So I'll give it to you on the front end and then we'll walk through it. First off, holiness means being exclusively devoted to God And on the other side of that, it means being entirely distinct from the world. That's what holiness is. Exclusive devotion to God, entire distinction from the world. So so we'll walk through that one at a time. First off, holiness means being exclusively devoted to God. Here's a question that you probably have not spent a great deal of mental energy on. So I'll just ask it for you because it specifically shows up in this story. Why does God have an issue with footwear? Both Moses and Joshua, when they found themselves in the presence of God, the very first thing that God commanded them to do, before he told them to do anything else, he commands them to remove their sandals. So I wonder if you've ever asked, what is that actually about? Is that just, you know, God arbitrarily decided that taking off your shoes was a sign of respect, and so that's why we do that when we enter homes today, or what is that actually about? When you understand how the Bible uses the word holy, you'll understand why that command makes sense. So so let me explain kind of how I, really prior to this week, how I've at least unconsciously always understood holiness, And, and this is probably how most of us have. Usually, when we talk about holiness, when you see how other people use it in a sentence, we, we're really talking about morality. You know, holiness means you do good stuff, you don't do bad stuff. You know, God's holy means God doesn't sin. Be holy means you shouldn't sin either. So we connect holiness with morality. If you've heard somebody, you know, you described as others, they're so holier than thou. What, what you're saying is they think they're better than everybody else. They think they're, they're more moral than everyone else. So we have a tendency to connect the two. When you look at the way the Bible uses the word holy, you will find it uses it a lot differently. Uh, In this work, or this week, in in preparation for this teaching, I did a word study on how many times the word holy shows up in the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. What I found is it shows up 665 times in 595 verses, Uh, and I read all of them, and I was very surprised at what I saw. Uh, So let me try to condense that into 45 seconds or so. The first time the word holy is used in the Bible, it shows up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, where we're told that God blessed the seventh day and he declared it holy. Now, that's fascinating because a day of the week cannot be moral or immoral. And yet, according to God, it can be holy. If you keep reading through the Old Testament, you'll see that more often than not, that's how that word is used. You get to the book of Leviticus specifically and Leviticus will tell you that, that garments, utensils, food, and even animals can be holy. Now, again, none of those things can be moral, and yet, according to the Bible, all of those things can be holy, and it, and it sort of begs the question, well, what, what's going on here? What does that actually mean? And you get a good answer in Levitic- Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. In Leviticus 10.10, 10, God commands the nation of Israel He commands them to learn how to distinguish between what is holy and what is common. In other words, according to Leviticus, the opposite of being holy is not being sinful. The opposite of being holy is being common. So when it commanded, for instance, you know, the Levitical priests, the people who served in the presence of God in the temple, when it commanded them to do so with a holy garment, what that meant what that was exclusively saying is don't you dare believe that that tunic that you wear in the presence of God can be worn anywhere else to do anything else. You do not dare wear the same tunic that you minister in the presence of God with out in the field to do your dirty work. Same thing with bowls, same thing with utensils, same thing with all of that. That something is, it can only be considered holy if it is used exclusively in the service of God. It is exclusively devoted to God. So back to our original question here, The reason that the sandals needed to go for Moses and Joshua is because those sandals were used to walk anywhere. Those sandals were, were, you know, they they, they walked on all kinds of ground, all throughout the the desert, jungle, wilderness, you know, river, whatever. But because the place where they were standing, now because of the presence of God had been made holy and those sandals were common, they now had to go. Now, the, the reason that it's so important to understand holiness this way is because if you try to reduce holiness to just morality, if you try to to reduce what it means to be holy to just doing good things and not doing bad things, then what you'll inevitably do is you'll reduce Christianity to, to basically just moralism. But when you understand what the Bible is actually talking about when it talks about holiness, what you realize is something that kind of shocked the religious leaders in Jesus's day, and I think it would probably shock a lot of people in our day who have misconceptions about Christianity. This definition of holiness means that you can be, at the same time, an incredibly moral and incredibly unholy person. You, you can be a person who is abounding in good works, that you know, checks every box and, and crosses all your T's and dots your, your I's. You can be extremely moral and yet extremely unholy at the same time, which, if you're interested, is basically the biblical definition of a Pharisee. Right, Pharisees were people... So shocked by the teachings of Jesus. Everybody would have thought when Jesus came down here, of course he's going to rebuke the the tax collectors, sinners, thieves, prostitutes, all that kind of stuff. But surely he's going to have nice things to say to the religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees. And yet what you see in in, in Jesus' ministry that people just could not wrap their head around, at least the religious leaders couldn't, is that Jesus seemed to reserve his harshest rebukes, not for the people living openly sinful lives, although he certainly spoke against that, But his harshest rebukes seemed to be reserved for the people who were living religiously hypocritical lives. So how is it that that Pharisees could be moral and unholy at the same time? Jesus explained this over and over again. He explained that the reason for that is because when they gave and when they prayed and when they fasted and when they served and when they did all of their religious duties, they were doing so for the reason that all merely religious people do moral things so they could look good in the eyes of other people and feel good about themselves. And so what Jesus was getting at is that the heart of their morality, it was never born of a devotion to God. It was really just a, manifest, a religious manifestation of their own devotion to themselves. It was self-centeredness with spiritual lipstick on is what it was. And because of that, far from being pleasing to God, it was actually unholy. So, so when, when, you start, when you start considering holiness in, in, in this way, you realize holiness can only begin in your and my life when we start to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for me to devote every single area of my life to God? What does it mean for every area of my life to be exclusively devoted to the service of the God who purchased me with his own blood? Every single one of us, has areas of our lives that just because of our temperament, background, way we were raised, whatever, there's areas of our lives that aren't very difficult for us to kind of accidentally hand them over to God and do what he says. But with that, every one of us has areas of our lives that we really want to hold on to, areas of our lives that we really want to do things the way that we really want to do things. And God, you can have these areas, but not this. What the Bible says is true holiness is about accepting God's presence into every area of your life uh, realizing that all of those areas belong to him anyway. True holiness is about allowing my, my finances, my relationships, my sexuality, my thought life, my public life, my private life, my, my every part of my being to be exclusively devoted to God. When you, when you go down that road, uh, of course, that's going to lead to surface-level moral behavior, but it's born from something that's far, far deeper than any surface-level moral behavior. I hope I explained that in a way that was clarifying and didn't leave you more confused, but unfortunately, this is the only teaching I have prepared, so that's best of God for you. That's one aspect of holiness. It's exclusive devotion to God. The other aspect of holiness, I said on the front end, is that holiness is also about being entirely distinct from the world. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word translated holiness, the very first definition of it, literally means apartness. Now, I could stop here and I could simply say, all right, so let's go out into the world and be distinct. But first off, I don't think that would be terribly helpful. And also, that's a recipe for us getting real weird, which Christians have done. And I I pointed this out at the 9, I'll say it again at the 11. Holiness and being weird are not the same thing. The Bible does not command us to be needlessly offensive to the world, and it does not command us to be weird for the sake of being weird. There's a difference between that and being distinct from the world the way scripture commands us to. So what I wanted to do, I thought this would be helpful, is actually give you a vision for what that kind of distinction that scripture calls us to looks like. And I'll just here's my here's my disclaimer on the front end over the next few minutes, I'm probably going to talk about things that perhaps may make you uncomfortable. Uh, but what's good preaching if it doesn't make you uncomfortable? I just, If, if anything that I say for, from here on out, if this kind of cuts across the grain of what you think or what you hold to or what you believe, I just ask you to consider that, to sit on that and really think about that in light of what God's Word has to say. All right, so, so there's my kind of spoiler alert. Let, let me get into it. A man named Larry Hurtado wrote a book called Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? In this book, he explains that for the first three centuries, there was no religious group that was persecuted more than the Christians. And the reason for that is because they would not honor the gods, they would not worship the emperor as God, they were seen as too narrow, too exclusive, and therefore, in the eyes of Roman society, they were seen as a threat to the social order. And so, historically, we know they faced Uh, mind-boggling torture and persecution, and I mean, they basically invented forms of murder in order to put Christians to death. Despite that, at the year 380, the Roman Emperor Theodosius declared Christianity the official belief system of the Roman Empire, and that has caused for a number of centuries, that has caused historians, both religious and secular, to scratch their heads and ask the question, how? How? How did something that was persecuted, I mean, if you were going to get Christianity off the ground, the first couple centuries of the Roman Empire would be about the worst place to do it. So the question is, how did it grow? In, in our culture, the way that churches grow primarily is because people who are already a part of a church invite people that they know to come and check it out, but obviously you couldn't do that in the first several centuries because Christianity not only was often illegal, but even if it wasn't overtly illegal, it was always persecuted. What that meant is you couldn't have gatherings like this. And even if you could, you would certainly not just start handing out flyers and inviting people because for all you know, somebody that you invited as a spy, seven days later you find out your entire church family is in prison or dead. So it raises the question, and this is the question Larry Hurtado seeks to answer in his book, it raises the question, how did it grow and why were people so attracted to it? In his answer, he says that it's because Christians formed, his term, a unique social project, what this means, he says they were a counter-cultural community that was at the same time both offensive and attractive to the Roman culture around them. In other words, it was holy. Uh, and, and while a lot of things have been pointed out and could be pointed out about, about the, the early church, the first followers of Jesus, what i want to do is just take some time uh, walking through the five things that he says set them apart from the culture around them. And, um, you know, a number of people have told me, that they, sometimes they feel like they have to listen to my teachings more than once, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, this is probably one of those teachings. I'm about to throw a ton of information at you all at once, um, but I think it's, it's super important for us to wrap our heads around. So pardon me if I go a little late today. I know that's basically a death sentence when a pastor says that, but just hang on, gang. Here's five things that marked the early church as it got off the ground in the first several centuries. Number one, the church was, was a community that was multiracial. Prior to Christianity, strange that this may sound to us, you didn't simply choose your religion. You basically inherited it as an, as an extension of your, of your ethnicity or uh, your nationality. Uh, the, the way it worked back then is if you were born into a specific city, nation, or tribe, then you simply worshiped the gods of that city, nation, or tribe. You didn't think about it just the way that things were done. Obviously, because of that, there was very little diversity uh, in belief systems, because everybody was from the same place and looked the same and thought the same and lived the same, Uh, Christianity came along, and it brought into human thought for the very first time in history this idea that you could choose your religion regardless of your race or your class. And furthermore, Christianity taught this extremely radical idea that the moment you started following Jesus, the moment you put your trust in Jesus you received an identity that didn't do away with, but it demoted every other identity that you had. So I think that bears kind of walking through. Here's what this means for me. I, Ryan Cox, am an American citizen. Uh, I'm white, I'm a male, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a whole bunch of other things But what Scripture teaches is that the moment I gave my life to Jesus, I received an identity in Him. It doesn't erase all those other things. All those other things are true about me. However, none of those things are the primary identity that governs the rest of my life. My primary identity that's meant to inform the way that I interact with other people, the decisions I make, the life that I live, is my identity in Jesus Christ, that that I've been given by grace through faith in His name. Christianity taught that which was a unique idea at the time i think it's still unique when you compare it to other belief systems but what that did is that created unity between people that that would have never otherwise been unified paul talks about this in ephesians 2 where he says that this dividing wall of hostility that once separated jew and gentile has been broken down because of the finished work of jesus christ so what that meant is that the, the, the watching world, when it looked at the early church, what they saw for the first time in history was men and women from different races, classes, ethnicities, and nationalities calling each other brother and sister and treating each other like equals. They'd never seen anything like that before. So, first, it was multiracial. They're not all going to be that long, by the way. The second one is really short. The second attribute they were known, known for is that Christians were, were a community famous uh, for caring for the poor. Uh, This is a quote from, from a Roman emperor, Julian. He was a pagan emperor. He hated Christianity, and he wanted to see it die out. But when he sat on the throne of the Roman Empire, he looked out and he saw that its influence was growing, and this is what he noted about it. He said, where Jews took care of their own and pagans took care of nobody, Christians took care of everybody, not only their own, but the pagan needy as well. So they were known for the way they cared for the poor. Thirdly, Christians were known as a community that was committed to the sanctity of life. Now, abortion as we know it uh, was, was almost unheard of in the Roman Empire, if only because it was incredibly dangerous. But a practice that was extremely common in the Roman Empire, you may have heard of this before, was called infant exposure. Basically, the way that it worked is if you had a child that you did not want, you would simply expose that child, literally leaving them outdoors exposed to the elements, where one of two things would happen to them. They would either die being exposed to the elements, or, extremely commonly, they would be picked up by traders uh, and then sold either into slavery or prostitution. There, we, we, we Actually, we have letters that have survived from the Roman Empire where a man, I think he was in modern-day Egypt, was writing to his wife back in Europe and she was pregnant, and in the letter, he said, if you deliver while I'm away, if, if our child is a daughter, expose it. If it's a boy, keep it. And that wasn't out of the ordinary. That was just the way that you did things back then. But in that culture, I say all this to say that in that culture, Christians uh, were known to find the places where they knew infants were being exposed because it tended to happen in specific areas. They would take those children in, and they would raise them as their own. Why? Because they believed in the sanctity of life. They believed that every man, woman, and child was a person of infinite worth, dignity, uh, and and value simply because they were marked as made in the image of their creator. So they were famous for the way they were committed to the sanctity of life. Fourth, I only got five, so hang in there with me. Fourth, they were known as a sexual counterculture. Roman culture insisted that married women abstained from sex outside of marriage, they insisted on that. However, uh, in Rome it was not only accepted but even expected that men would basically have sex with whoever they wanted to as long as it was it was with someone lower on the status uh, status ladder than them basically rome viewed Sex as an appetite—it wasn't good, it wasn't bad. It was simply something that, when you felt it, you fulfilled it, kind of thing. And so, it it, it was actually—it was common that that in in Roman culture, if a man higher on the status ladder demanded sex from someone lower than them, in a lot of cases, they couldn't—they actually could not refuse him. Now, I don't have to elaborate on how profoundly that impacted the lives of women and children in the Roman Empire. Into that culture, Christianity came along, and first and foremost, it commanded husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And not only that, but Christianity taught that sex was to be an expression of love exclusively celebrated inside the context of a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman called marriage. Now, I, I can't help but point out the irony here that in our culture, that sexual ethic is seen as exclusive, it's narrow-minded, it it may be even oppressive. I just want to point this out that in Rome, as that Christian sex ethic spread, uh, that actually saved countless women and children from what would have otherwise surely been a lifetime of abuse. So fourth, they were a sexual counterculture. Fifthly, lastly, and this one will be quick, it was a community of forgiveness uh, and, and reconciliation. You may have heard me say this before, Rome was a shame and honor culture, and in a shame and honor culture, when somebody hurts you, you hurt them back, and you hurt them so badly that it teaches everybody else never to mess with you again. That's just the way that you did things. Christians, completely over against that, were a group of people who were known uh, for loving and forgiving and praying for and serving the people who were hurting them the most, that even when they were being imprisoned, even when they were being persecuted, even when they were being murdered, they would not stop loving their enemies. Why? Because they knew, and they were transformed by the truth that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. All right, those five things. What I wanted to walk you through. I know that's a lot, but let me just uh, let me make an observation here. People, what people have pointed out when you look at those attributes of the early church that it is basically impossible to place them in a single category. Because, uh, specifically in, in, in our culture, the first two attributes that I mentioned, racial reconciliation and caring for the poor, those ideas, hang on, tend to sound more liberal to people in our culture. Whereas the second two attributes I mentioned... Uh, which is concern for the sanctity of life and a traditional sexual ethic, those ideas tend to sound more conservative in our culture. As far as that fifth thing, loving and serving your enemies, nobody's known for that. That does not sound like anybody anymore. But those first four things, it's almost like they kind of straddle the, you know, the party lines uh, because for us today, what this means is because of how divided our culture is, specifically along political party lines. My father was born in 45. He said he's never, it's never felt more divided than it is now. Because of how divided it is now, just know this, there is maybe more pressure than there ever has been for individual Christians and for local churches to skew one way or the other. There is perhaps more pressure than there ever has been to emphasize those first two attributes I talked about while not really touching on the second two because those are divisive, or to emphasize the second two but not really touch on the first two because, yeah, you know, let's not get in an argument about that. Now I'll tell you that, that as a guy who's, who's been on stage with a microphone strapped to his face, who's had to talk about this stuff for the last several years, I have noticed that there's a lot of people who will cheer when you talk about racial reconciliation and caring for the poor. But then the moment you start talking about caring for the unborn in a traditional sexual ethic, you know, then it's, hey, this isn't what I thought it was, that's that's narrow, that's exclusive, that's, you know, that's closed-minded, that's all those things, I'm out. And, and, you know, the other side of that coin is I've noticed that there's a lot of people that that, uh, they'll give you a standing ovation when you start talking about caring for the unborn and the fact that sex is to be reserved inside the context of a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman called marriage. I mean, they'll pat you on the back, you know, they'll tithe, they'll give you a standing oath, you know, you're the last bastion of truth in a watered-down culture, but you start talking about racial reconciliation and caring for the poor, and then it's, uh, you've you've been taken captive by a liberal agenda, you hippie, and then they're gone. I'm not speaking in hypotheticals. I've, this has been my job for the last couple of years. Here's the problem with that. Here's the problem. as if, if, if you want to follow Jesus, if you're God's people, here's the problem by, by kind of taking two and leaving out two. All four are in this book. All four matter to God. And if you're going to follow the whole Jesus of the Bible, then all four of those things need to matter to us. And what happens when you begin Uh, holding to all four of those things, just those four things, without compromising any of them, what surely will happen is in that moment, you stop having a home base in this world. You stop fitting into the cultural ideologies and political philosophies of this world, and you start walking this third way. It's not left. It's not right. It's also not a mixture of both. It just kind of transcends and challenges both. That's the way of Jesus. That's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about holiness, I believe it was Dr. Tony Evans that said, Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. <laughs> I can't say that without smiling. I, tried to do, I couldn't do it in the nine either. I love that quote. I wish I came up with it. That's not me. His point was that Jesus, being God in the flesh, does not fit into the camps and categories that we've, we've created in this world. And so if we're going to follow him, it stands to reason, neither should we. That's what holiness means. So here's the question. How do you do that? You imagine if I left the teaching off by saying, all right, Gang, go be exclusively devoted to God and entirely distinct from the world. If it was that easy, you know, I think we all would have done that a little while ago, maybe. But actually, Joshua knew how difficult this would be. Joshua himself. Uh, the, the more that I was reading about Joshua this week, the more he just seemed like a guy I'd really like to hang out with, um, because I followed his life to the end. And at, at the end of his life in Joshua chapter 24, he's an old man. You know, he's he's bore the burden of leadership for decades. And he's addressing—it's basically his farewell speech to Israel—and in that, in that kind of motivational, powerful rally the troops speech, he says something that's become one of the—he would have had no idea—but it's become one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's there in Joshua 24, where he says, "Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." Now, I'm sure a lot of you have that hanging in your house, or maybe you were raised in a home where that was hanging up. Here's what I've noticed. Nobody talks about what Joshua says right after that. Because right after that, the whole nation of Israel says, Hey, that sounds like a good idea, Joshua. We're going to serve the Lord too. Here's here's what Joshua chapter 24, verse 19 says. (laughs) But Joshua told the people, You won't be able to worship Yahweh because he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not remove your transgressions and sins. Ten verses later, he dies. So at the end of this amazing life, Joshua stands up in front of God's people and says, choose you this day who you'll serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. All Israel says, yeah, Joshua, we're going to serve him too. He says, no, you won't. And then he dies. (laughs) I'm glad you find that as hysterical as I do. But but just so we're clear, I don't read that as a guy who's just done with people and done with foolishness and nobody listens. I don't see a bitter, cynical old man that's been hardened by the responsibilities of leadership. I I think Josh was just a realist. This is a guy who stood in the manifest presence of the holiness of God. All he's saying here is there's no way people like us can stand in the presence, let alone worship a God that's as holy as this God is. If something radical doesn't completely change the landscape here, this just doesn't add up. And then, boop, they bury him kind of thing. So the question is, what's the answer? I mean, what's the solution here? And, and to, 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 to find the solution, I just want to focus in on this kind of mysterious character that I've been a, a little bit mousing over. If, if you read this story carefully, you notice this, this figure that calls himself the commander of the Lord's armies very enigmatic. Because on the one hand, he says that he's sent from the Lord. He's the commander of the Lord's armies, i.e. he's not the Lord. But then he lets Joshua worship him, which would be a real big deal for an angel to do. And then he tells Joshua the same thing that God himself told Moses. So it kind of raises the question, well, well, who exactly is this? Commentators uh, have pointed out that this figure that stood before Joshua that day is a figure that shows up maybe a couple dozen times in the Old Testament at very specific, very significant intervals, uh, a figure referred to as the angel of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of times angels show up in the Bible. But every once in a while, you come across a figure who's not an angel of the Lord. He's the angel of the Lord. And every time he shows up, and this is no exception, he's always portrayed deliberately as a paradox because it always says the angel showed up and said this or did that. But then if you keep reading the story, it'll say it was God who showed up and said this or did that. So this figure is deliberately portrayed as both identical with God and yet distinct from God. So for all my Bible scholars out there, just ask, is there anyone else you can think of in the entire Bible that's referred to as being both equal with God and yet distinct from God at the same time? Alec Modier is an Irish biblical scholar, and he couldn't phrase it better than this. There's only one other person in the Bible who's both identical with yet distinct from the Lord, one who without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity or diminishing the divine holiness is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners, and who while affirming the wrath of God is yet a supreme display of his outreaching mercy. The angel of the Lord cannot be understood except as a pre-incarnate appearance, of Jesus Christ himself the commander of the Lord's armies was Jesus Christ before he was born as a human being he himself is the solution uh, to the problem that this encounter raised for Joshua that he couldn't even find a solution to at the end of his life because just like he did for Joshua he knocked down walls for God's people only when Jesus arrived here at Calvary The walls he knocked down were not walls surrounding a city. It was walls that kept us out of the presence of a holy God. In in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel accounts, all three of them were told there's a very specific thing that happened as soon as Jesus died on the cross. All three of their accounts tell us that when Jesus, the moment he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That was a 60-foot high, 30-foot wide curtain that separated two rooms, the holy place from the most holy place, also known as the Holy of Holies. And the fact that that curtain tore the moment Jesus Christ died is the Bible's way of telling us that a way had finally been made for people to stand in the presence of a holy God. And that way was none other than Jesus Christ himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And the only reason any of us can dare enter into the presence of this holy God that Joshua stood in the presence of that day is because when Jesus came here for us, he came not as a commander but a carpenter, not with a sword in his hands but with nails through his hands, not to destroy his enemies but, thank God, to die for them. By grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Now a bunch of people like us can enter into the presence of a God like this. Let me call the worship team up. We're gonna close with this. I said on the on the back end of our time last week that the heart of this series is more than just amassing intellectual information. That these these stories and what they reveal to us about God would really change the way that we live. So let me just end today by trying to apply this truth to your heart. I just want to draw one implication from it. When you zoom out from this story and you look at what happened with Jericho, what happens here is Joshua is given the courage to stand before the walls of Jericho. Those walls represented the, the greatest power of his day, an obstacle that he had absolutely no answer for in and of his own ingenuity or strength. Joshua, what we see here, is he had the courage to face those walls because he knew that his God was fighting for him. I just want to remind you today, because I really believe if Joshua were here, knowing what we know now, this is exactly what he'd say, you know so much more than Joshua knew. You know better than Joshua knew. Joshua knew that his God was willing to fight for him. You know because of Jesus that your God was willing to die for you not just to fight, but to die. And the promise that we have over and over again in the New Testament is that the moment you give your life to Jesus, that same power that brought Joshua to his knees, that same power that brought the walls of Jericho down for God's God's people, that same power enters into your life through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's something that, that Joshua would have never dared to dream of. And there's a lot of implications you can draw from that, but I'll leave you with this. I don't know what kind of walls you have in your life today. I don't know what kind of obstacles you're faced with that you have no answer for, no power for, in and of your own strength. What I do know is that in Jesus Christ, you have a savior who is exceptionally gifted at dealing with things that you and I cannot deal with on our own. And if he was willing to bring down the walls of Jericho for Joshua, there was no telling what kind of walls he can bring down in your life. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, please help us to simply see you as you are. You are You're a holy God. You're incomparable. You have no rival. You have no equal. You fit into no category. And to begin to understand you is to really begin to understand that you can't be understood. God, I just ask that specifically at the end of this service that, that we would begin to see you more clearly and change in light of what we see, that your holiness would translate to us living lives of holiness, that we would walk out of this place changed by grace through faith, in the name of Jesus, amen.